Chapter Ten of Aaron's Rod by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, Part A. The War Again. One is a fool," said Lily, "to be lachrymose. The thing to do is to get a move on." Aaron looked up with a glimpse of a smile. The two men were sitting before the fire at the end of a cold, wet April day. Aaron convalescent, somewhat chastened in appearance. Ay, he said rather sourly, a move back to Guilford Street. Oh, I meant to tell you, said Lily, I was reading an old Baden history. They made a law in 1528, not a law, but a regulation, that if a man forsakes his wife and children, as now so often happens, the said wife and children are at once to be dispatched after him. I thought that would please you. Does it? Yes, said Aaron briefly. They would have arrived the next day, like a forwarded letter. I should have had to get a considerable move on at that rate, grinned Aaron. Oh, no, you might quite like them here. But Lily saw the white frown of determined revulsion on the convalescent's face. Wouldn't you? he asked. Aaron shook his head. No, he said, and it was obvious he objected to the topic. What are you going to do about your move on? Me, said Lily. I'm going to sail away next week, or steam dirtily away on a tramp called the Maud Allen Wing. Where to? Malta. Where from? London Dock. I fixed up my passage this morning for ten pounds. I am Cook's assistant. Signed on. Aaron looked at him with a little admiration. You can take a sudden jump, can't you? he said. The difficulty is to refrain from jumping, overboard or anywhere. Aaron smoked his pipe slowly. "'And what good will Malta do you?' he asked, envious. "'Heaven knows. I shall cross to Syracuse and move up Italy. Sounds as if you were a millionaire. I've got thirty-five pounds in all the world. But something will come along.' "'I've got more than that,' said Aaron. "'Good for you,' replied Lily. He rose and went to the cupboard, taking out a bowl and a basket of potatoes. He sat down again, paring the potatoes. His busy activity annoyed Aaron. "'But what's the good of going to Malta? Shall you be any different in yourself in another place? You'll be the same there as you are here.' "'How am I here?' "'Why, you're all the time grinding yourself against something inside you. You're never free. You're never content. You never stop chafing.' Lily dipped his potato into the water, and cut out the eyes carefully. Then he cut it in two and dropped it in the clean water of the second bowl. He had not expected this criticism. "'Perhaps I don't,' said he. "'Then what's the use of going somewhere else? You won't change yourself.' "'I may in the end,' said Lily. "'You'll be yourself, whether it's Malta or London,' said Aaron. "'There's a doom for me,' laughed Lily. The water on the fire was boiling. He rose and threw in salt, then dropped in the potatoes with little plops. "'There are lots of me's.' I'm not only just one proposition. A new place brings out a new thing in a man. Otherwise you'd have stayed in your old place with your family." "'The man in the middle of you doesn't change,' said Aaron. "'Do you find it so?' said Lily. "'Aye. Every time.' "'Then what's to be done?' "'Nothing, as far as I can see. You get as much amusement out of life as possible, and there's an end of it.' "'All right, then. I'll get the amusement.' "'Aye. All right, then,' said Aaron. But there isn't anything wonderful about it. You talk as if you were doing something special. You aren't. You're no more than a man who drops into a pub for a drink, to liven himself up a bit. 
Only you give it a lot of names and make out as if you were looking for the philosopher's stone or something like that, when you're only killing time like the rest of folks, before time kills you." Lily did not answer. It was not yet seven o'clock, but the sky was dark. Aaron sat in the firelight. Even the saucepan on the fire was silent. Darkness, silence, and the firelight in the upper room, and the two men together. "'It isn't quite true,' said Lily, leaning on the mantelpiece and staring down into the fire. "'Where isn't it? You talk, and you make a man believe you've got something he hasn't got? But where is it, when it comes to? What have you got, more than me or Jim Bricknell? Only a bigger choice of words, it seems to me.' Lily was motionless and inscrutable, like a shadow. "'Does it, Aaron?' he said in a colourless voice. "'Yes. What else is there to it?' Aaron sounded testy. "'Why,' said Lily at last, "'there's something. I agree it's true what you say about me. But there's a bit of something else. There's just a bit of something in me, I think, which isn't a man running into a pub for a drink.' "'And what?' The question fell into the twilight like a drop of water falling down a deep shaft into a well. I think a man may come into possession of his own soul at last, as the Buddhists teach, but without ceasing to love or even to hate. One loves, one hates, but somewhere beyond it all one understands and possesses one's soul in patience and in peace." "'Yes,' said Aaron slowly, while you only stand and talk about it. But when you've got no chance to talk about it, and when you've got to live, you don't possess your soul, neither in patience nor in peace but any devil that likes possesses you, and does what it likes with you, while you fridge yourself and fray yourself out like a worn rag." "'I don't care,' said Lily. I'm learning to possess my soul in patience and in peace, and I know it. And it isn't a negative nirvana, either. And if Tanny possesses her own soul in patience and peace as well, and if in this we understand each other at last, then there we are, together and apart, at the same time and free of each other, and eternally inseparable. I have my nirvana, and I have it all to myself. But more than that, it coincides with her nirvana." "'Ah, yes,' said Aaron. But I don't understand all that word-splitting. I do, though. You learn to be quite alone, and possess your own soul in isolation, and at the same time to be perfectly with someone else. That's all I ask sort of sit on a mountain-top back to back with somebody else, like a couple of idols. No, because it isn't a case of sitting, or a case of back to back. It's what you get to after a lot of fighting and a lot of sensual fulfillment. And it never does away with the fighting and with the sensual passion. It flowers on top of them, and it would never flower save on top of them. What wouldn't? The possessing of one's own soul and the being together with someone else in silence, beyond speech. And you've got them? I've got a bit of the real quietness inside me. So has a dog on a mat. So I believe, too. Or a man in a pub. Which I don't believe. You prefer the dog? Maybe. There was silence for a few moments. And I'm the man in the pub, said Aaron. You aren't the dog on the mat, anyhow. And you're the idol on the mountain-top, worshipping yourself. You talk to me like a woman, Aaron. How do you talk to me, do you think? How do I? Are the potatoes done? Lily turned quickly aside and switched on the electric light. Everything changed. Aaron sat still before the fire, irritated. 
Lily went about preparing the supper. The room was pleasant at night. Two tall dark screens hid the two beds. In front the piano was littered with music, the desk littered with papers. Lily went out onto the landing and set the chops to grill on the gas stove. Hastily he put a small table on the hearth-rug, spread it with a blue and white cloth, set plates and glasses. Aaron did not move. It was not his nature to concern himself with domestic matters, and Lily did it best alone. The two men had an almost uncanny understanding of one another, like brothers. They came from the same district, from the same class. Each might have been born into the other's circumstance. Like brothers, there was a profound hostility between them, but hostility is not antipathy. Lily's skilful housewifery always irritated Aaron. It was so self-sufficient. But most irritating of all was the little man's unconscious assumption of priority. Lily was actually unaware that he assumed this quiet predominance over others. He mashed the potatoes, he heated the plates, he warmed the red wine, he whisked eggs into the milk-pudding, and served his visitor like a housemaid. But none of this detracted from the silent assurance with which he bore himself, and with which he seemed to domineer over his acquaintance. At last the meal was ready. Lily drew the curtains, switched off the central light, put the green-shaded electric lamp on the table, and the two men drew up to the meal. It was good food, well-cooked and hot. Certainly Lily's hands were no longer clean, but it was clean dirt, as he said. Aaron sat in the low armchair at table, so his face was below in the full light. Lily sat high on a small chair, so that his face was in the green shadow. Aaron was handsome, and always had that peculiar well-dressed look of his type. Lily was indifferent to his own appearance, and his collar was a rag. So the two men ate in silence. They had been together alone for a fortnight only, but it was like a small eternity. Aaron was well now, only he suffered from the depression and the sort of fear that follows influenza. "'When are you going?' he asked irritably, looking up at Lily, whose face hovered in that green shadow above, and worried him. "'One day next week. They'll send me a telegram. Not later than Thursday.' "'You're looking forward to going?' the question was half bitter. "'Yes. I want to get a new tune out of myself.' "'Had enough of this?' "'Yes.' A flush of anger came on Aaron's face. "'You're easily on and easily off,' he said, rather insulting. "'Am I?' said Lily. "'What makes you think so?' "'Circumstances,' replied Aaron sourly, to which there was no answer. The host cleared away the plates and put the pudding on the table. He pushed the bowl to Aaron. "'I suppose I shall never see you again once you've gone,' said Aaron. "'It's your choice. I will leave you an address.' After this the pudding was eaten in silence. "'Besides, Aaron,' said Lily, drinking his last sip of wine, "'what do you care whether you see me again or not? What do you care whether you see anybody again or not? You want to be amused, and now you're irritated because you think I am not going to amuse you any more.' and you don't know who is going to amuse you. I admit it's a dilemma, but it's a hedonistic dilemma of the commonest sort. I don't know hedonistic. And supposing I am as you say, are you any different? No, I'm not very different, but I always persuade myself there's a bit of difference. Do you know what Josephine Ford confessed to me? She's had her lovers enough. There isn't any such thing as love, Lily, she said. Men are simply afraid to be alone. That is absolutely all there is in it—fear of being alone. 
"'What by that?' said Aaron. "'You agree?' "'Yes, on the whole.' "'So do I, on the whole.' And then I asked her what about woman. And then she said, with a woman it wasn't fear, it was just boredom. A woman is like a violinist, any fiddle, any instrument rather than empty hands and no tune going. "'Yes, what I said before, getting as much amusement out of life as possible,' said Aaron. "'You amuse me, and I'll amuse you. Yes, just about that.' "'All right, Aaron,' said Lily. "'I'm not going to amuse you, or try to amuse you, any more. Going to try somebody else. And Malta.' "'Malta, anyhow.' Oh, and somebody else in the next five minutes. Yes, that also. Good-bye and good luck to you. Good-bye and good luck to you, Aaron. With which Lily went aside to wash the dishes. Aaron sat alone under the zone of light, turning over a score of Peleus. Though the noise of London was around them, it was far below, and in the room was a deep silence. Each of the men seemed invested in his own silence. Aaron suddenly took his flute and began trying little passages from the opera on his knee. He had not played since his illness. The noise came out a little tremulous, but low and sweet. Lily came forward with a plate and a cloth in his hand. "'Aaron's rod is putting forth again,' he said, smiling. "'What?' said Aaron, looking up. "'I said Aaron's rod is putting forth again.' "'What rod?' "'Your flute, for the moment.' "'It's got to put forth my bread and butter.' Is that all the buds it's going to have? What else? Nay, that's for you to show. What flowers do you imagine came out of the rod of Moses's brother? Scarlet runners, I should think, if he'd got to live on them. Scarlet enough, I'll bet. Aaron turned unnoticing back to his music. Lily finished the wiping of the dishes, then took a book and sat on the other side of the table. It's all one to you, then, said Aaron suddenly, whether we ever see one another again. "'Not a bit,' said Lily, looking up over his spectacles. "'I very much wish there might be something that held us together.' "'Then if you wish it, why isn't there?' "'You might wish your flute to put out scarlet runner flowers at the joints.' "'Aye, I might. And it would be all the same.' The moment of silence that followed was extraordinary in its hostility. "'Oh, we shall run across one another again sometime,' said Aaron. "'Sure,' said Lily. "'More than that, I'll write you an address that will always find me, and when you write I will answer you.' He took a bit of paper and scribbled an address. Aaron folded it and put it into his waistcoat pocket. It was an Italian address. "'But how can I live in Italy?' he said. "'You can shift about. I'm tied to a job. You, with your budding rod, your flute, and your charm, you can always do as you like.' "'My what?' "'Your flute and your charm.' "'What charm?' Just your own. Don't pretend you don't know you've got it. I don't really like charm myself, too much of a trick about it. But whether or not, you've got it. It's news to me. Not it. Fact, it is. Ha! Someone will always take a fancy to you, and you can live on that as well as on anything else. Why do you always speak so despisingly? Why shouldn't I? Have you any right to despise another man? When did it go by rights? No, not with you. You answer me like a woman, Aaron. Again there was a space of silence, and again it was Aaron who at last broke it. We're in different positions, you and me, he said. How? You can live by your writing, but I've got to have a job. Is that all? said Lily. Aye, and plenty. You've got the advantage of me. 
Quite, said Lily, but why? I was a dirty-nosed little boy when you were a clean-nosed little boy, and I always had more patches on my breeches than you. Neat patches, too, my poor mother. So what's the good of talking about advantages? You had the start, and at this very moment you could buy me up lock, stock, and barrel. So don't feel hard done by. It's a lie. You've got your freedom. I make it and I take it. Circumstances make it for you. As you like. You don't do a man justice, said Aaron. Does a man care? He might. Then he's no man. Thanks again, old fellow. Welcome, said Lily, grimacing. Again Aaron looked at him, baffled, almost with hatred. Lily grimaced at the blank wall opposite and seemed to ruminate. Then he went back to his book, and no sooner had he forgotten Aaron, reading the fantasies of a certain Leo Frobenius, than Aaron must stride in again. "'You can't say there isn't a difference between your position and mine,' he said pertinently. Lily looked darkly over his spectacles. "'No, by God,' he said, "'I should be in a poor way otherwise. You can't say you haven't the advantage. Your job gives you the advantage. All right, then leave it out with my job, and leave me alone. That's your way of dodging it. My dear Aaron, I agree with you perfectly. There is no difference between us save the fictitious advantage given to me by my job. Save for my job, which is to write lies, Aaron and I are two identical little men in one and the same little boat. Shall we leave it at that now? Yes, said Aaron. That's about it. Let us shake hands on it, and go to bed, my dear chap. You are just recovering from influenza, and look paler than I like. You mean you want to be rid of me, said Aaron. Yes, I do mean that, said Lily. Aye, said Aaron. And after a few minutes more staring at the score of Peleus, he rose, put the score away on the piano, laid his flute beside it, and retired behind the screen. In silence, the strange dim noise of London sounding from below, Lily read on about the Kabyles. His soul had the faculty of divesting itself of the moment, and seeking further deeper interests. These old Africans, and Atlantis, strange, strange wisdom of the Kabyles, old, old dark Africa, and the world before the flood, how jealous Aaron seemed, the child of a jealous god, a jealous god. Could any race be anything but despicable with such an antecedent? But no, persistent as a jealous god himself, Aaron reappeared in his pyjamas, and seated himself in his chair. "'What is the difference, then, between you and me, Lily?' he said. "'Haven't we shaken hands on it? A difference of jobs. You don't believe that, though, do you? Nay, now I reckon you're trespassing. Why am I? I know you don't believe it.' "'What do I believe, then?' said Lily. "'You believe you know something better than me, and that you are something better than me.' don't you? Do you believe it? What? That I am something better than you, and that I know something better. No, because I don't see it, said Aaron. Then if you don't see it, it isn't there. So go to bed and sleep the sleep of the just and the convalescent. I am not to be badgered any more. Am I badgering you? said Aaron. Indeed you are. So I'm in the wrong again? Once more, my dear. You're a God Almighty in your way, you know. So long as I'm not in anybody else's way. Anyhow, you'd be much better sleeping the sleep of the just. And I'm going out for a minute or two. Don't catch cold there with nothing on. I want to catch the post, he added, rising. 
Aaron looked up at him quickly, but almost before there was time to speak, Lily had slipped into his hat and coat, seized his letters, and gone. It was a rainy night. Lily turned down King Street to walk to Charing Cross. He liked being out of doors. He liked to post his letters at Charing Cross Post Office. He did not want to talk to Aaron any more. He was glad to be alone. He walked quickly down Villiers Street to the river to see it flowing blackly towards the sea. It had an endless fascination for him, never failed to soothe him and give him a sense of liberty. He liked the night, the dark rain, the river, and even the traffic. He enjoyed the sense of friction he got from the streaming of people who meant nothing to him. It was like a fox slipping alert among unsuspecting cattle. When he got back he saw in the distance the lights of a taxi standing outside the building where he lived, and heard a thumping and hallooing. He hurried forward. It was a man called Herbertson. "'Oh, why, there you are!' exclaimed Herbertson, as Lily drew near. "'Can I come up and have a chat?' "'I've got that man who's had flu. I should think he has gone to bed.' "'Oh!' The disappointment was plain. "'Well, look here. I'll just come up for a couple of minutes.' He laid his hand on Lily's arm. "'I heard you were going away. Where are you going?' "'Malta.' "'Malta! Oh, I know Malta very well. Well, now, it'll be all right if I come up for a minute. I'm not going to see much more of you, apparently.' He turned quickly to the taxi. "'What is it on the clock?' The taxi was paid, and the two men went upstairs. Aaron was in bed, but he called as Lily entered the room. "'Hello,' said Lily. "'Not asleep?' "'Captain Herbertson has come in for a minute.' "'Hope I shan't disturb you,' said Captain Herbertson, laying down his stick and gloves and his cap. He was in uniform. He was one of the few surviving officers of the guards, a man of about forty-five, good-looking, getting rather stout. He settled himself in the chair where Aaron had sat, hitching up his trousers. The gold identity plate with its gold chain fell conspicuously over his wrist.' "'Been to Rosemary,' he said. "'Rotten play, you know, but passes the time awfully well. Oh, I quite enjoyed it.' Lily offered him Sauterne, the only thing in the house. "'Oh, yes, how awfully nice. Yes, thanks. I shall love it. Can I have it with soda? Thanks. Do you know, I think that's the very best drink in the tropics, sweet white wine with soda?' "'Yes, well—' "'Well, now, why are you going away?' "'For a change,' said Lily. You're quite right. One needs a change now the damned thing is all over. As soon as I get out of khaki I shall be off. Malta. Yes, I've been in Malta several times. I think Valletta is quite enjoyable, particularly in winter with the opera. Oh, er, how's your wife? All right? Yes, glad to see her people again. Bound to be. Oh, by the way, I met Jim Bricknell. Sends you a message hoping you'll go down and stay. Down at Captain Bingham's place in Surrey, you know. Awfully queer lot down there. Not my sort, no. You won't go down? No, I shouldn't. Not the right sort of people." Herbertson rattled away, rather spasmodic. He had been through the very front hell of war, and like every man who had, he had the war at the back of his mind like an obsession. But in the meantime he skirmished. "'Yes, I was on guard one day when the Queen gave one of her tea-parties to the blind. Awful affair. But the children are awfully nice children. Prince of Wales, awfully nice, almost too nice. Prince Henry, smart boy, too. Oh, a smart boy. Queen Mary poured the tea, and I handed round bread and butter. She told me I made a very good waiter. I said, Thank you, madam. 
But I like the children. Very different from the Battenbergs. Oh, he wrinkled his nose, I can't stand the Battenbergs. Mount Battens, said Lily. End of Part A